Hello and welcome to this issue of the Redaction Politics podcast with me, James Moles. We'll be taking another look at some of the biggest topics in world politics of the week and month just gone by. So, we're going to be starting by taking a look at science denial and conspiracy theory with an article that has been written by our reporter, Mason Quaff. Welcome. Good to be here. So the ongoing COVID pandemic has shaken the world in ways arguably unprecedented since the Second World War. As well as the social and economic fallout from the pandemic, numerous conspiracy theories have run rampant all over the world. But how does misinformation and denial like this spread so effectively? So, Mason, you've taken a look both at the ongoing COVID pandemic and taking a look at other examples through history, such as the misinformation around spread by the tobacco industry. Um, how does all this denial take hold? Well, there's only there's exactly one core belief that you need in order to be susceptible to pretty much any conspiracy theory, whether it's believing that COVID-19 is a Chinese bioweapon or that uh, the Black Death was caused by Jews poisoning the well. And that one thing that you need to believe is that the sources of information that you're being exposed to, which disagree with those assertions, are in some way contaminated. And that is basically the entire core of agnotology, which is the science of ignorance. Okay, and obviously, like I say, you cited the example of the tobacco industry. How did that all play out? In the case of tobacco, the there were massive there were massive power structures in play here so one of the main things that was done was that scientists were hired by the tobacco industry to sort of muddy the waters and to spread misinformation and one of the main things is that these these theories while factually ambiguous did actually have nuggets of truth to them. So one of the main things that was argued was that there were genetic causes to cancer, which is impossible to deny, right? There are people who are genetically predisposed to cancer, and therefore the line of tobacco was not that people who smoke develop cancer, but that people who develop cancer are more likely to smoke. And it's not something that you can easily disprove, and it's not something that a lot of scientists were interested in disproving. So a lot of it came from sort of the corporate lobby that was trying to push misinformation in order to sell their product, is that correct? Yes. And I would say that a broad side effect of that is that once you've sort of created this sort of dual power structure within science, where people are forced to sort of pick and choose between which group of scientists they would prefer to believe, once you've created that sort of environment, it becomes a lot more easy for people to accept other types of misinformation. Mm. And what sort of similar scenarios do we see playing out today? Well, I think the most the most obvious one is the one about COVID-19 being caused by people eating bats. There was a single data point about how the genetic uh, lineage of the virus seemed to originate from bats. And all it took for people to make the leap in logic was that single data point, and then everyone was saying that Chinese people ate bats raw. You know, uh, that's that, that, that was a theory that I covered in my previous article on sinophobia. Yes. And obviously the other big hot topic of the day would be climate change. So with both these COVID-19 conspiracy theories and climate change, do you see 
a dangerous place where this could unfold to and what would that look like? Uh, I think that there are very strong parallels that can be drawn. So one of one of the main one of the main driving forces of climate denial was an organization called the NIPCC. And the reason they call themselves that is because it's a very easy acronym to confuse with the IPCC. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, on COVID on COVID nineteen, we have both the say we both we have both Sage Advisory Group, but we also have the uh, sorry, uh, the uh, non-governmental Sage Group, which is you know uh, they've 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 appropriated the name and they're trying to spread their own version of the science. And while I think that the non-governmental Sage Group are closer to correct on a lot of these statements. It does a lot to muddy the waters, and I think there are a lot of people who are going to be very confused about which group they are meant to believe. Okay, because obviously we see we've seen in the UK a lot of contradictory statements regarding, for example, the lockdown measures. Would you say that this muddying of the water here has helped certain narratives be pushed, for example, or would you say that it's generally? I mean, where would, where would you say that this is leading with coronavirus? Well, with coronavirus, I think that it's, I think I think that the lack of the lack of solid understanding in the general population because of all of these mixed sources uh, leads a lot of people to avoid taking a firm stance, which is you know it uh, it's a big issue on it was a big issue in the tobacco in the tobacco example because it took 50 plus years for it to be categorized as a dangerous chemical. Uh, on climate change, it means that we have, we've spent a long time stalling without any real governmental action on phasing out fossil fuels. And on coronavirus, it means that a lot of people are broadly going to go along with whatever the current policy is, and they're not going to be able to discern which form of scientific advice is really correct, and therefore whether that government policy is actually well-founded. Mm. And to people who are unsure as to what to believe and what not, what advice would you give them? Uh, that's a, that's a very difficult question, right? I can't say, you know, uh, listen to my group of scientists because that's arguing from authority. Uh, the best thing that I can do, the best thing that I can say is to look at the comparisons that can be made. You know, there, there are governments around the world that have done very well at handling COVID and their policies differ very broadly to our own. Best thing we can do is to cast a wide net on how we gather our information and make what comparisons we can to assess what the correct course is. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Mason. Okay. I am happy to be here. Wonderful. Hungary has hit global news recently as its parliament passed through new legislation ending a person's legal right to change their gender. This law has members of the LGBT community fearful that Orban's government could instigate further discriminatory measures against them. Joining me now is our reporter Declan Carey, who's been looking into this. Hi, Declan. Hi, James. So could you briefly talk us through exactly what this law entails? Sure thing. Well, the law has changed uh, the right for the transgender community in Hungary to have their chosen gender legally recognised. So that means when they are perhaps applying for a job or filling in a form, 
they are legally required to put the gender they are born with rather than a gender that they wish to choose, which is basically a really big backward step in the country, um, according to many people and um, organisations there. And I think a big, a big shock about this was the timing of it, because it, it seemed to happen right in the middle of the coronavirus, when people were really distracted, people were busy focusing on other things. And Parliament came up with this bill, basically overnight, where people woke up and the next day, a fundamental right which they had, had suddenly disappeared. So there's a lot of anger about this and there's a lot of fear in the country about it. So obviously you spoke to some campaigners on this topic. Uh, Where are they fearful that this could lead to next? Yeah, so we did speak to some campaigners. For example, we spoke to Tamas Donbas from, from Hatter Society based in Budapest. And one of the things they fear is that more rights will be stripped away, perhaps at the same speed. This could be things like the right for same-sex unions in Hungary, which at the moment are permitted, but could easily be taken away. Um, a, a big problem, again, is the fact that people do fear further repercussions and the fact that they've not really been able to, for example, protest against it or really do much at the moment to stop that um, basically opens the door for the government, Fidesz, who are are currently in charge in Hungary, um, opens the door for them to do all kinds of things. And the fear is what will come next and when will that come? Hmm. What do you think is driving the logic behind this bill what uh, what do you think was Orban's and the Hungarian parliament's aim with this yeah I mean there's been a couple of different reasons suggested one of them was actually that in Hungary there is a a falling population um, and Orban has come out in in the media and introduced a few a few bills which have tried to combat against that so it seems that in Orban's mind combating or coming up with laws against LGBT rights and things like that is a way for them to address the issue, if that makes sense. Um, So, for example, something they've done is the government have taken over some fertility clinics in the country, um, and this is their way of trying to basically increase uh, the amount of people being born in the country. And for Auburn's government, LGBT rights definitely doesn't appear on that agenda. It's definitely something that isn't going to help them achieve that. And so at the moment, they're actively opposing that. And it appears that even in parliament debates, uh, language of homophobia is just now becoming open. Um, People are using remarks which in the past uh, they perhaps wouldn't have. And there seems to be now a real drive against rights and freedoms for the LGBTI community in Hungary. And obviously, as statistics that you cite in the article say, there have been a rise in hate crimes against members of the LGBT community. This has not just come from the government itself. Um, What do people reckon is driving this? Yeah, I think it's the lack of, almost lack of awareness about it in the country. So, for example, there are media outlets, for example, the the television channels, but some of these are state owned. So the problem is that when when laws like this do come out, um, there's often one side of the story given or not much attention given. And I think there's a general lack of awareness um, about the 
the kind of problems that, that LGBTI people have, for example, the fact that they're often victims of violence and the fact that they face such high rates of discrimination, a lot of people don't know about that. And that's kind of the role of organizations like Hatter Society and others um, who are trying to raise awareness about that to improve that situation. Because at the moment, um, the fact that not enough people know about it and not enough people know the significance of these changes, it is causing a lot of problems in the country. Okay. You also spoke to the uh, LGBT rights charity Stonewall, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, to Leanne McMillan from Stonewall. Yeah, she, she gave some, some interesting comments for us from, uh, from another perspective. Um, they definitely stand in solidarity with those with those affected in Hungary and it's interesting because despite the fact that Orban's government wanted to almost brush this under the carpet there has been an international response against it um, the United Nations for example have got involved the European Union as well and organizations uh, campaigning for LGTBI rights around the world have got in touch to offer their support so the, the positive thing to come out of this is that people around the world and in Hungary are standing up and are trying to do something about it. Of course, you know, taking to the streets right now is difficult. A lot of countries are in lockdown, but there's still plenty of things that can be done. Uh, online campaigning, raising awareness of these things. So that's the one positive that's come out of it. OK, well, thanks very much for joining us, Declan. No problem. Thanks very much. The UN Security Council elections are due next month. Canada is one of the nations contesting to take one of the five two-year slots, but critics say the country's record should disqualify it. Well, joining me now from Nova Scotia is our reporter Scott Coston to help us understand this. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. Yourself? Uh, great, thanks. Wonderful. So, Scott, could you tell us why there's been a petition launched? saying that Canada should not get this seat on the UN Security Council. Uh, Why are people launching this petition? What are their objections? Uh, Well, James, there's a number of objections that are being raised. The petition is brought in uh, by a a relatively new group called the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. uh, And the petition itself has been signed by a number of leading academics, authors, and activists within Canada, including uh, David Suzuki, who's extremely well-known here as an environmentalist, um, Romeo Saganash, a former member of parliament, Sid Ryan, a uh, labor leader. And um, the the focus is really on a number of failings that Canada has, not only uh, externally, but internally as well. So on the domestic front, they're challenging Canada's record on on climate. Uh, Canada, of course, is home to some very um, heavy uh, tar sands extractions, particularly in the province of Alberta. Um, another domestic issue is uh, Canada's treatment of its indigenous peoples. Uh, on the foreign affairs side of things, the petitioners are citing everything from the horrible track record of Canadian mining companies, uh, Canada's leading role in the Lima Group, and other regime change type efforts in Latin America and weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, which are uh, eventually being used against uh, people in Yemen. 
Okay, and would I be right in saying that when we're looking at Canada's record regarding Indigenous rights, a lot of these um, issues all tie in together, for example, with petroleum companies? Well, yes, exactly. Um, there's been a, a number of uh, protests um, in Canada, especially in the western part of the country. Um, there are uh, plans to build a massive uh, pipeline across the western part of Canada that's met with very um, strong resistance from a number of uh, Indigenous groups and First Nations. And uh, in some cases, there's been some um, heavy police involvement uh, from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, in, in particular the Gwetsuetan um, intervention by the RCMP is specifically mentioned in the petition. Okay. The Security Council elections due next month. Um, Canada is competing for two slots for the Western European and others group, up against Ireland and Norway. Um, how would Canada's record on foreign policy issues and generally compare to those other two nations? Well, I mean, it's it's been pointed out, and it's it's pointed out in the article itself that uh, Canada's actual direct foreign aid has uh, has has gone down and it's uh, you know pales in comparison to that of both Ireland and Norway. Um, Canada has put forward, to its credit, some uh, gender-based initiatives. Uh, this is one of the hallmarks of the Trudeau. Um, government, um, but they're not putting the money and the personnel into the um, the statements they're making. And, and really, in, in another case, Canada's top priority, according to its own online campaign for a Security Council seat, is to uh, promote um, or sustain peace together, is, is the term they use. Now, Canada currently ranks 77th in terms of peacekeepers on UN missions. This, to any Canadian, is a shocking statistic. Um, as of the end of last month, we only had 35 people on international missions. And, and if, if you, I don't know if, if you would recall this, James, but um, a former Prime Minister of Canada, prior to becoming Prime Minister, when he was an external affairs minister, Lester B. Pearson, is credited with the creation of UN peacekeeping during the 1956 Suez crisis. And he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for that. So for the country that um, essentially created UN peacekeeping to be 77th uh, is, is a shocking uh, statistic here. And it's, uh, it's an international failure that I think uh, many countries will, will be mindful of when they cast their vote. And how has it come to this? How has it got from the point of having a Nobel Peace winner to the Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau governments? Well, it's come to this because of just essentially a neglect of UN missions uh, in favor of NATO missions. And I can speak to this mm -hmm. with some personal experience, having been in the Canadian military and having served on a NATO mission in the in the 90s when I joined the military, we were participating in all kinds of UN missions. Um, in the last 20 years, it's just been a complete um, transfer of all the resources, personnel, and energy we used to put into the UN missions have now gone into NATO missions. Um, so, you know, it's been successive governments of different stripes, but um, the the trend line has been the same for the last 20 years. 
Within Canada, is there a lot of support for this bid? It's not something that's gaining a lot of traction, and obviously with COVID-19 uh, and now the uh, eruption of uh, protests in, in uh, the United States, um, there's a lot of other stories capturing people's attention. Um, but when you talk to people who don't follow these issues very closely, and you show them the, the, the um, points that are made in the petition, they're really quite surprised. It's as if the Canada we believe ourselves to be is, is, is partly a, a mythology. It's not backed up by the reality on the ground here or internationally. Because of course, internationally, Canada's image is often one of sort of America's nicer neighbor. But... We think of ourselves as a as a peace-loving, peacekeeping nation. The you know I mentioned peacekeeping. The blue beret or the blue helmet is is almost yeah. as as well known here as the red surge of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But when you tell people we're 77th in peacekeeping, um, they're shocked. So the the um, the platitudes that we get from our leaders just aren't backed up by by the facts. Okay. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Scott. Uh, that was very interesting, and hope things will go well in Canada. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be on. Welcome back. The UK is still in the full throes of the coronavirus pandemic, still reporting hundreds of deaths a day on a frequent basis. However, the government is starting to re- attempt to relax lockdown measures, with many criticising this proposal and others offering their support. Recently, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's chief advisor, has come under fire for appearing to break lockdown measures and has had to answer questions to members of the British press. Joining me now are Declan Carey and Mason Quart from earlier in the show, and Matt Trinder is also joining us for this section. Hi, guys. Hi. 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 So, obviously, Dominic Cummings has been a large amount of the news story as of late. Um, do you think, do you agree with the calls for him to resign? What do you think? Uh, I, I think he should definitely go. I mean, it, it's just... It's unbelievable, really, that the government is not only defending him, but spending so much political capital in doing so. Um, you know, we're not really meant to know his name, let alone his face. He, he's just meant to be a, an aide in the background who makes the Prime Minister look good. I mean, <laughs> need I say more? I mean, he, he has to go. I mean, it's a public health risk as well, because there's a lot of evidence. I mean, even myself, I've I've heard people saying, oh, why should I stay at home if he's not you know it's 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 a disaster politically but also you know in in terms of the coronavirus as well yeah i think i'm very much agree with matt on that the, the one thing i can say is i do think i understand why he hasn't I, I think they tried to just kind of brush it away a little bit and kind of just get on with things as normal um but i think that almost makes it twice as worse because you know the public aren't stupid they pick up on things like that. Um, you know, the, the press conference they did in their Prime Minister's garden, it was just so full of kind of elitism was the way I saw it. You know, who is this bloke giving this talk in the Prime Minister's garden? So I think that actually really revealed a lot 
And yeah, it's really worrying to see people with so much power um, without any accountability. For sure. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are saying that Dominic Cummings did keep within the legal bounds of it. They're trying to point out that he stuck to his household unit. I mean, what do you make of that argument? Well, he did, but the rules very clearly stated that if you are symptomatic, you should not travel. You should not spend a night in a second home. And also, you shouldn't travel because you may put pressure on emergency services elsewhere in the country. And I believe he did say that he, he went to hospital with his son. So he came into contact with lots of different people. You know, the northeast is not as prepared as London is um, in terms of emergency services. So, I mean, I, I personally, I think it's clear he did break the lockdown. But even if he didn't, he certainly broke it in spirit. You know, we, we should expect very high standards from someone so close to the prime minister. So it's um, it's not a good look at all. Mm. But obviously, Dominic Cummings' story, as important as it has been, is almost in many ways a distraction from the larger issue, which is the fact that we've seen very recently, the UK is currently the worst affected country in Europe in terms of COVID-19 deaths. It's also one of the worst affected in the world. Only the United States has a higher raw number of deaths, and the UK according to certain measures, has the highest number of deaths per capita of COVID-19 of any country in the world. Is this what we should be talking about more than Dominic Cummings? No, it surely can't be, but it does seem part of a bigger strategy to to move the attention away from it. I think it was yesterday in the press briefing they were talking about the footy, weren't they? About the Premier League coming back and how cheerful that is and it's going to cheer us all up. But, you know, it's just... There's so many problems with their strategy and they try to, you know, make us look away from the bad job that they've done. And as I said earlier, I don't think it's working. I think people see through it. Yeah, that's the problem. It it underlines the message. So, I mean, what's going to happen if there's a second lockdown, for example, and the prime minister has to come on television and say, stay at home, don't leave your home. I mean, everyone will say, well, what does that mean? Last time you didn't really tell us about the small print that apparently we were all too stupid to notice. So is that in operation now? You know, I think I think I think you'll see people with families traveling all over the country. I mean, why, you know, why wouldn't you if you think that's in the best interest for your for your children? So it's very dangerous. Especially if the furlough scheme isn't extended beyond October, which the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has indicated that it won't be. Yeah, they're definitely backtracking on that now. Very early in the crisis, it was, you know, whatever the NHS needs, it's going to get. Whatever people need in terms of support from not working, you've got it. But in the past few weeks, they've been talking about the damage to the economy and how, you know, we can't go on spending this money forever. And it it does seem that the furlough scheme is going to end in October, whatever's going on. So... I don't really know what the plan B is at the moment, and of course they won't they won't tell us either, maybe because they don't have one. Well, if the furlough scheme doesn't continue and a lot of people end up losing their jobs, the way the way to look at it is either the government's gonna to have to support a lot of people in employment or support a lot of them out of employment. Yeah. But I hope it's not controversial to suggest they should be supporting people in employment. So 
we'll have to see where that goes if things haven't picked up by October or God forbid if they've got worse at all. Yeah. But I mean, obviously Matt Hancock, the health secretary, um, got his priorities thoroughly in order when he tweeted yesterday. Thanks to the nation's resolve, horse racing is back from Monday. <laughs> wonderful news for our wonderful support. <laughs> Um, Declan, you're based in Spain at the moment, right? How does the um, situation there compare to the UK? Oh, it, it's so different. Um, yeah, over, over here, I think when it first started, people were very much um, people were very much together. I think there was quite a lot of, of good spirit. People were united. There were, you know, people on, on the balconies every night clapping and, you know, n- neighbours who maybe don't see each other so often waving, you know, across the street. And it, there was all that kind of nice positivity there. And to be honest, I did think it would wear off, but people stuck to it, you know, people really did. And if you look at the, the number of deaths, you know, I remember at one point there were, there were 900 daily at one point in Spain. And it absolutely dropped so quickly where now we're at the point where, I think it was yesterday or the day before, there were only two deaths in the whole country. Many parts of the country are de-escalating. Look across to the UK and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of from an outside perspective, I guess, at the minute looking into it, but it just seems absolute chaos. Even the briefings that I see, I find it really difficult to find the number of deaths, the number of infected, because, you know, they often announce it for England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and it just seems very muddled to me to get that clear information. And, you know, ministers, when they're being put questions, which isn't all the time, you know, sometimes they're not even taking questions, um, but when they are, um, they don't seem to know the facts. So it's really worrying to see that from an outside perspective, and it's been so different over here. <clears throat> yes, of course. I mean, one of the other ways the Spanish government has reacted, and Redaction will have a story about this coming this week, which is the proposal from the Pesoe uh, Podemos government to introduce a measure of a basic income system to support the least well off families. Um, we ran a story also a while ago where we talked about the pros- prospect of this in the UK and I approached the Treasury for comment on this and they said they are categorically not considering a basic income platform. Do you reckon this would be a better system to support people throughout the, the pandemic and even beyond? Um, yeah, I mean, it gives that security, doesn't it? Um, that no matter what happens, there's, we're going to be there for you, we're going to support you. And I do think that one thing people will remember from this time, whether that's the government or businesses, I think people will remember how they were treated. You know, I think whether businesses treat you rightly or not, whether the government shows that it has a plan and that it will look after you or not, I think people will remember that and that will stick with them for the future. But, you know, there's a lot of optimism about it over here. Um, There's a lot of comfort in that. I I know other European countries um, are offering not quite the same, but similar things. So it definitely seems like a plausible idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, if there's a second major lockdown, it might be inevitable because the government might have to concede that overall it might be a bit cheaper than some kind of extensive staggered furlough scheme. Um, But politically, I think they will only cross that line when they really have to. I mean, there's still really no support for people on zero hour contracts here. They just kind of say, oh, just apply for universal credit or whatever. But 
you know, it's what, £92 a week after a five-week wait? I mean, it's, you know, no one in the UK can live on that, especially if you don't own your own home. So, um, I, I think it, it may come if things get worse, but um, this Conservative government will not want to do it until they really, really have to, because it's just ideologically a, a, a no-go zone for them. And of course, there are several hoops to jump through to get universal credit, and a lot of people are ineligible. For example, if you have savings of 16000 or more, I think it is, between you and your partner, you cannot claim universal credit. So, Yeah. Just to put some economic statistics that contextualise, like just mm-hmm. how bad the situation is at the moment. Like, uh, we, like before this crisis started, we had over 12 million households with less than 1,500 in savings each month, and those savings are going to go up like wildfire as the furlough scheme gets weaned out. Uh, a lot of these families are undergoing intergenerational living because they're very poor uh, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic families. That means that it's impossible for them to, you know, isolate their elderly and the people who are most at risk, which means, you know, when those young people go back to work, when they're forced back into work due to just running out of those savings, lots more people are going to die. Yeah, absolutely. And the point you touch on there, obviously, is the extent to which um, uh, the BAME population in Britain have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and there have been calls for investigations into this and an inquiry. Um, where do where do we think that could lead with the government's response? Do we see this them having a, um, a serious investigation into this? Obviously, there are several theories floated as to why this could be some of which seem more legitimate and others veer very much into scientific racism. I mean, what do we make of this? I, I, I think the concern about scientific racism is pretty valid. I mean, to bring things back to Dominic Cummings, it wasn't that long ago that he was writing blog posts about the need for NHS-funded eugenics. Like, uh, the current government cannot be trusted to properly take care of the, of the minority constituents. Uh, to just put forward a quote from uh, Luton MP Sarah Owen, uh, like the coronavirus is a virus that thrives on inequality, economic inequality and racial inequality. Yeah. And I think that uh, one of the strongest things that we can do to this is not to trust that some government agency will hold an inquiry, but to collect our own data and to create independent power structures that are capable of holding them accountable. And I think a big part of this is going to be strengthening the position of whistleblowers. There was, we know that people in, in the NHS have been given gag orders and told not to talk about the lack of PPA. Yeah. All we need is all we need is to create an environment in which these people are able to speak about this and able to share that experience to blow the cover on the entire story. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And of course, that is part of the point with the extent to which. Um, a lot of BAME communities have been worse affected by this is that is the correlation between that and economic inequality and obviously poorer households are going to be worse affected especially in densely populated areas where access to healthcare is more overloaded yeah it's frustrating to hear the government kind of reacting in a Oh dear, yes, it seems that BAME people have been worse affected by this crisis. We, we should probably do something, shouldn't we? I mean, these people have been 
you know, at, at the wrong end of society for a long time. I mean, this was clearly uh, predictable. And what worries me about an inquiry is that, you know, as one Tory MP said on the TV the other day, you know, it's a way of kicking it into the long grass, you know. It will report in two or three years and then there'll be a public apology, probably from a different Prime Minister, and then we'll move on. Um, I know inquiries can be useful, but um, politically, when a government calls for an inquiry, they're trying to move the situation on. So, um, yeah, it's a worry. And of course, can we trust the government that has a history of, well, we all know where the Windrush scandal. Exactly. Led. Yeah. We all know where that led to. Can we trust the government with a history of that to yeah. handle an inquiry into disproportionate affection of famed communities by the COVID in any anything considered an even-handed way? Yeah, I think as Mason said, there definitely needs to be a, an independent element to it outside of Parliament, outside of politics, because then some real pressure can be applied to political leaders. Mm. And of course, I'm just looking at an article on ITV News here right now. Uh, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has expressed his concern that the coronavirus crisis could also deepen Britain's north-south divide. In the article, uh, Mr. Starmer says, the north-south divide is continuing to grow. That gulf is even starker in the coalfield communities like Doncaster. Without government action, there is a real risk. The coronavirus deepens the existing injustices and inequalities. Um, what do we make of this? Yeah, the, the north-south divide, I think, was bound to, to come up at some point with this and, and the different sort of reaction of it. Um, I, I think it's got to be got to be monitored closely. Um, I know London is a hotspot for for the coronavirus uh, in, in particular, but I think there are communities in the north um, which are massively affected by this. So, for example, I grew up in Manchester, um, where issues such as homelessness are a massive problem. Um, and you know, we've got a Labour mayor at the moment, Andy Burnham, who's doing a good job dealing with it, but. There are always, always um, problems with not having enough funding, not having, you know, a coordinated response to that. And I think after the coronavirus, um, after the coronavirus goes and, and things settle down a little bit, it's definitely needed to be looked into and find out um, if there was enough support for all regions of the country. Yes. Well, obviously, we saw in the recent general election in December that the so-called red wall supposedly collapsed went over to support Boris Johnson and Conservatives many constituencies for the first time ever, some in many, many decades. Um, if Boris Johnson and the Conservatives obviously failed to deliver on that promise to them, do we reckon that this is going to be a one-time only, or do we reckon the cat's out of the bag already there, and a lot of these constituencies that were once Labour strongholds are now very much open for grabs? Uh, swing seats well it's it's difficult to tell really because you know the election in December was very much the Brexit election no matter what Labour tried to do to change that and you know I think there, there would have been many people in those areas who were deeply uncomfortable voting Conservative but they thought Brexit was the issue of the time and it needed to get sorted so especially with coronavirus changing things who knows what the situation is going to be in 2024 when we're due to vote again but um, 
you know, it's time for Boris Johnson to put his money where his mouth is. You know, he was elected on a ticket of levelling up the country, supposedly. Again, the ultimate irony, because Thatcher's Conservatives were the one party that I think did did the most damage to the North-South divide in the 80s. But um, they were elected on that ticket. It's even clearer now. Action needs to be taken. So they've got to do it. If not, I think there will be a political price to pay. Okay, well, let's now move on to the second part of our group discussion here today, which is about the ongoing unrest in the US city of Minneapolis and, of course, now other cities across the nation, which were sparked by the murder of George Floyd, an African American man who was killed after a police officer, a white police officer, it should be noted, knelt on his neck for several minutes and choked him to death. Um, what sort of people's reaction to the subsequent unrest and this and this murder? I would. I think that you know, uh, it's very easy to see the unrest as like there, there are a lot of people who are viewing it in the context of senseless violence. But I think what we need to do is look at you know the re- like look look at the root cause. It's not just the singular killing, but the long-standing history of inequality in these areas and the continuously growing tensions that are now just starting to boil over. It is not about the one incident, it is about the decades to centuries of history that America has with racism. Yeah, um, you know, Trump calling for healing and then in the next sentence saying where there's looting, there's shooting. I mean, it's just absolutely... I mean, you, you couldn't write it, it's unbelievable. I mean, there are so many toxic myths and legends you know going back all the way to the civil war in the u.s you know we've seen it with um certain local authorities trying to remove confederate statues in in certain cities in america and the huge backlash there's been against that i mean you know these these myths from the civil war need to be tackled you know slavery was ended as a an economic warfare technique by the north if anything and um you know until these toxic myths are tackled this this will just keep happening you know it's 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 a, a downward spiral well one of the very telling things with trump is how he's reacted to the unrest in minneapolis compared to how he responded a couple of years ago to the charlottesville protest yeah in which he famously said what about the old left there are bad people there are bad people on both sides yeah unbelievable have we have we seen that sort of reaction this time around no yeah, he's he's very much supporting the police and condemning the protesters. So yeah, I mean politically, yeah, politically it's it's come at a really bad time because of course he's he's in campaign mode already. So you know Trump was probably never going to react to something like this in a rational way, but this year it's even worse because he's trying to distract from his catastrophic handling of the pandemic and you know he's trying to do everything to get the economy opening up so this has really come at a bad time for that obviously you mentioned the the um, the legacy of the confederacy in there have been several polls i'm going to try and find them while we speak that have suggested that a considerable number of Americans are deeply ignorant as to why the Civil War even happened in the first place. A lot of them say it was all about states' rights. 
rather yeah. than a matter of slavery. Um, how do you think America needs to go about addressing the deep underlying racial problems in its society? Hmm. It's a it's a big question, and I, I, I think there's no clear clear answer to it. Um, I think what needs to be done is I think communities need to need to connect with each other because it seems to me that there's still um, there's still such a divide between the African American communities and other communities in the country in terms of that. I think there's maybe not so much understanding of some of the problems and issues that they have, and this is why it tends to I think boil over so often. Um, what's really interesting, I think, in terms of all these protests that have, have boiled up, is that it took such a, a reaction for anything to happen in response to this. Because I believe it was, was it was it a few days after it happened, possibly up to a week after it happened, until the the officer was was arrested, and I, yeah. I believe he's been charged as well. But well, I just. Yeah, I'm saying I have is that, you know, he's currently being charged with third degree murder, not even second. Mm-hmm. So third, de- third degree being not even the intent to inflict any bodily harm. Mm-hmm. Whereas second would be intent to harm, but not intending to kill. So even with, like, even if there was an eventual conviction, I don't believe that justice is being done here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I've just found, I've just found a poll uh, while you're speaking. Pew Research Centre. Asked their impression of the main cause of the Civil War, a plurality, 48% of Americans said it was mostly about states' rights. Just 38% say the Civil War was mainly caused by slavery. When you're considering that as part of the context of what's going on in America, I mean, and when you see a number, so many Americans coming out saying whenever Confederate monuments are targeted, they say they're trying to erase history. I mean, what do you think this says about the way the Amer- especially white Americans think about race? Yeah, well, it's um, th- there's still a very distorted way of looking at it. You know, there's a misunderstanding of the history there going back centuries, as Mason said, and that's used currently as a political tool. So, you know, a leader like Trump likes nothing more than than stirring up trouble and dividing people and um, this kind of issue um, you know particularly just removing a statue from a central square I mean it's not an attempt to erase history just go and read a book about it why do you need a statue Mm. in Central Park I mean but that kind of lightning rod is is exactly what these kind of people find useful to stir up divides today and as I said before um, all this talk about healing I mean okay lovely you know that's all pray but there needs to be action you know there needs to be a change to the socio-economic inequalities that are still plaguing um you know groups of people in certain neighborhoods and segregation is still there you know um many cities um in the u.s didn't allow african americans to buy a home in the same areas as white people so that those laws have gone but but people still kind of live in that in that arrangement. So, until that's challenged, it w- it will go on and on. Absolutely. Obviously, I mean, one thing we've seen from uh, several pundits in this country in recent days uh, during the ongoing 
unrest in Minneapolis, there's a lot of people turning around and saying, look how bad it is in America. At least we in Britain can be thankful we don't have race that bad, which obviously is very misleading. Yeah. Racism is a massive problem in this country. I mean, how how do you think we should be better responding from this country than saying things like that? Well, I think um, you have to look at the historical context in which people are acting. So, um, you know, you hear lots of cheap jokes about um, the Americans' love of guns, for example. You know, mm. it's always, it's not all Americans, but historically, you know, there was there was a revolution in America and people having guns was very useful for them at that time. So there's a historical attachment to those objects that we don't have here. It doesn't mean that um, the UK or Britain is any better or cleverer or, or what have you. It's just a different historical context. So I think if people spent more time trying to understand that and conte- contextualizing the behavior that they were seeing, then yeah. you know we, we'd, we'd go a long way to, to treating people with just a bit more understanding if, if, if you can't respect the action, just understanding why it's going on. Yeah, just just to build on that a little bit, um, I think a lot of people in in this country feel maybe a little bit powerless about it. Like, what what can you do, you know, yeah. to help? But I think just don't do nothing. You know, I've seen a lot of people trying to even just raise awareness of the issue by sharing facts on social media. Um, you know, sharing infographics. Um, there's some really powerful videos on Twitter at the moment about moments that are happening on the protest. I think yeah. spreading those as far and wide as possible is a great thing that almost anyone around the world can do to to have a good impact. Yes, we're recording this, uh, I should add, we're recording this on a Sunday and as of today there is set to be a, there are set to be protests in London in support of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. in Trafalgar Square, for example. Um, do, you, do, do you see this as an encouraging display of solidarity on the part of the UK? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, as you were saying before, race isn't such a, a lightning rod issue in the UK, but, you know, where there's racism is everywhere. And, um, you know, we have to stand in solidarity with um you know, with people who are fighting against it. Just to build on what Declan was saying about social media, I saw this morning a fantastic video on Twitter from Flint, Michigan. The local sheriff, you know, addressing a crowd of people in the street. Um, He gets the police to take off all their riot gear and just says, you know, we love you, we're with you, we want to hug you, we want to march with you. And then the whole crowd is shouting, you know, let's walk together. And he walks with people through the street you know, and it's just fantastic to see that reaction we need, not where there's looting, there's shooting. You know, that's that just rackets things up and, and makes it worse. So, um, you know, we, we need more scenes like that all over the world, I think. What, what would you say to the extent that people would categorise the rioting? Because there's been a lot of controversy over this. The extent to which we call the rioting a form of protest. Where would your argument be on that? I mean, personally, I would argue, I think, we're seeing a lot of people getting more up in arms over the fact that it's rioting than the, fact that, than the cause of the riots in the first place. I mean, do you see rioting as a legitimate form of protest? Yeah, I think I can 
totally um, understand where riots come from in the context of what's happened. You know, this is, it, it's not just sort of discrimination anymore, but it's people dying, isn't it? You know, yeah. deaths on the street. And it's, um, as Matt and Mason were both saying, this is a long history of, of this happening. Um, just going back to my previous point about, you know, it took a massive protest to get any kind of response to happen to this. That makes me think, well, what about all of the occasions when something as bad or worse has happened and it's not been on video camera, you know, yeah. which people have just spoken about and maybe not been believed. So I think in response to, to death and in response to violence as such that we've seen from authority figures, um, I can totally understand why um, people might break out into riots, you know. I don't think it's intentional, I think it's just an emotional um, built up, you know, anger that's been there for a long time. I, I, I'm going to agree on that. I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, like, we can't just view it as an isolated act of protest. It is a sociological event. When these pressures reach a boiling point, a riot will happen. That is the way yes. we need to look at it, rather than these people make an active decision to go out and knock over trash cans. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yeah. So what comes next? How will this affect Trump's chances in the upcoming election in November? If at all, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it will really have that much of an impact. I mean, this kind of event will people that didn't like Trump before will just not like him even more, and people that loved him will probably love him even more because of the way he's reacting. So, you know, I think coronavirus and the economy will have a bigger impact. But um, you know, I don't see any positive moves in the direction of race relations in the US while Trump is president, not at all, because he's way too willing to use it to his advantage, as we saw with the the protests a few years ago you mentioned earlier. And of course, his opponent hardly has a perfect record on race relations either. Notoriously, during the Democratic primary debates, there was a spar between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden over Joe Biden's somewhat questionable record on race. So... Yeah, and he claimed... Um, in an interview with a, a black journalist recently that the journalist couldn't be black if he was considering voting for someone else. I mean, it's just... Right, yeah. I mean, need I say more? I mean, it's... Yeah. You know, there's, there's and that, that is very much a line that his opponents have capitalised on, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you can, now, you can now get a commemorative T-shirt saying, I'm not black. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, just before we wrap things up, I'll ask people for a prediction right now. It's currently May 31st, 2020. The election's not for another few months yet, but what do you reckon? Trump or Biden? Who's it going to be? Um, probably Trump, I think. How come? Um... I think the economy um, will be hit by coronavirus, but I, I think now that he's he's got so many opportunities to deflect from that because coronavirus is, you know, clearly a, not an unprecedented incident, as people keep saying, because it's happened many times before throughout history. But in our modern sensibilities, you know, it's considered something so such a big curveball that um, I, I think he'll be able to use it to his advantage. Um, in the end, but you know, personally, I hope I'm proved wrong, but I still get the feeling he'll win. Yeah, me, me too. I think Trump, 
I think I think you'll get it. I do think it'll be very close. I think there's a lot of groups, um, marginalised groups and groups of people who feel attacked who um, could, could never vote for him, you know. Yeah. But I do think it'll be very close, but he'll just edge you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to throw my own hat onto the same pile and say <laughs> I, think, I think Trump is going to take it. I think it is going to be close. I think that a stronger opponent than Biden would probably be able to take the crown from him. Yeah. But at, at the moment, people rally towards the strong man in any time of crisis. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to say, look, I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I would say Trump is definitely going to be re-elected, more or less regardless of who his opponent was. The pandemic has changed that, and the economic fallout from that is going to make a huge impact on the election. The question is how, A, how well the pandemic's going at the time, and B, how good Trump is at deflecting the blame, which, mm-hmm. let's face it, Donald Trump is very good at that. Very so good. I think it's going to be close, like you all say, I completely agree, but I also sadly completely agree that if I had to lean in one direction or the other, I think Trump is probably going to take it again. Yeah. Either way, I'm not a fan of either candidate, and either way, I'm going to be happy that one of them lost and sad that one of them won. <laughs> yeah, that's the bright side, yeah. <laughs> At any rate, okay, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but thanks everyone for joining us, and thanks everyone for tuning in for this issue of the Reduction Politics podcast. We'll be back again soon, but in the meantime, take care and stay safe.